Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all for making it. We're going to be the number one media conglomerate in the world. The key here is act like a happy family. We're the Osbournes, and I'm Daddy fucking Warbucks, okay? I always wanted one of you kids to take over. People would do well to remember there's going to be a new sheriff in town. Here's to us. Hello and welcome back to Still Watching Succession. I am Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. Uh, if you are just joining us, what we do every week on Still Watching is we break down the latest episode of our current sort of TV obsession. Right now, we are firmly aboard the HBO succession train uh, of this great season two. And today, we will be talking about season two, episode four, titled Safe Room. And no other spoilers beyond that, just up to that episode. This is a great episode of television in this season is just like, it's really killing it, Richard. Yeah, it's humming along. And, you know, I've been a little bit wary of the show to kind of literalizing. It's like, I don't know, the real world, I guess. Uh, but I thought they handled like the whole thing of like, you know, a problematic news anchor and people protesting outside. There were subtle note, you know, nods to like the proud boys and various other groups. Um, I thought it was done without a heavy hand, which I appreciated. Yes, we get, we get the introduction of, uh, the problematic Etienne anchor, 
Um, and, and that's all handled like humorously, but seriously, I don't know. I just, I yeah. thought it's, it's pretty great. Uh, and we get the introduction of Holly Hunter's character, Rhea Jarrell, the, uh, CEO of the Pierce news group. So, uh, that all happens in this episode. We are going to do what we did last week, which is we're going to run down sort of like our, our list of who's on top, who's on the bottom of our various players. We've got the Roy family in the mix. But we also have a couple peripheral players, uh, also on our list this week. Uh, before we dive into that, I do want to read one quick email that we got from a listener. You can email us, um, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com if you have something you want to say. Uh, this comes from, Catherine, uh, and she writes, one of the things that I love most about this show is that it has all these terrible, terrible, terrible men. And not a single one of them is rapey, not even Roman, not even at any, at the anything goes sex club. The one time Kendall gets an intimation that his plus one to a party was instructed by her boss to be willing to sleep with him. He's revolted by the thought. The most boundary pushing we've seen anyone be is when Connor takes Molly and can't stop telling people he loves them. And even then the host of the party is like, this is not acceptable and you need to stop it right now. It's so refreshing. Everyone was always talking about how Game of Thrones had to be rapey in order to show what terrible people they are. And this show just proves what a hollow farce that idea is. Still watching Catherine. Uh, I just thought that was something that actually hadn't even occurred to me. And I'm not yeah. saying that like succession will never go there, but I think that's a really good point that Catherine makes there. Well, yeah, I think the point about like, uh, you know, I don't think that we need to deny that that sort of, that exists in the world, obviously, but like, Absolutely. I think that it, for, yeah. for, for a TV show that, you know, like there are many other ways that aren't triggering and, and harmful for people to show that someone's, you know, their character is a bad person. And I think this show figures it out, uh, very well. And you're right. I hadn't really noticed it, but now that Catherine points it out, I'm like, Oh yeah, that's really true. And good on the show for, uh, finding a, a way to do that. Yeah, exactly what you say. It's not to say that this doesn't happen, especially doesn't happen in these particular halls of power. And I don't want to like deny anyone's experience that that happens, but like, it's just not the only way to show men behaving badly or power abuse and stuff like that. And I just, I applaud succession for finding other intriguing storylines uh, to explore. Yeah. I mean, I think that also in this episode where they, um, you know, where Connor goes to Lester's funeral and there's a confusion about whether his name actually wasn't Mo because that was a nickname. And there is a nod to these, to this kind of cabal of men who are, it's like, what are they doing? You know? So like the show is not ignorant to it, but yeah, it's, it, it, when, when that kind of thing is used as a kind of lazy plot device, to explain someone's badness like that 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 cheapens the the kind of real weight of the thing and and so it's appreciated that they don't um rely on that as such a kind of easy dramatic crutch yeah so great point from Catherine. and um if you have other great points y'all want to write in and let us know still watching pod at gmail.com you can uh so we are going to start with our our uh power our power list uh, and we like to start at the top because it's always fun to end on, um, whoever's sniveling <laughs> at the bottom. Yeah. So, um, uh, we're going to start on top with a newcomer to the game, which is Rhea Jarrell, Holly Hunter's character. Um, it's so fun. I'm, I'll just say right off the bat, you know, she comes in for this sort of sneaky meeting. She's sort of 
there on the one hand to offer up a, uh, what does she call it? Like a diplomatic fuck off from the Pierce group. Like we were not interested, but also like maybe she's a little interested. Maybe she personally is a little interested, even if her board or the family is not. And so she's playing it at nine different levels, which is always fun to see. It's also fun to see Holly Hunter. Um, if you're a longtime fan of Holly Hunter, it's just fun to see her in this context of like a media news group, given that one of her best roles of all time is in broadcast news, mm-hmm. uh, per- a perfect film. Uh, so, uh, you know, and she's got like the bob. I mean, she's not, it's not, it's not quite the, uh, the perm, uh, obviously that she had in broadcast news, but she's got the short power bob going. So, um, it's pretty great. So yeah, Richard, what do you, why do you think Ray Jarrell deserves to be on hop this week? Well, the whole, c- no thanks, I'm not hungry. Like we we mostly eat Pulitzers over yeah. it. You know, like that whole like yeah. kiss off to that thing. I mean, I just think that like it's a it's a well written character, obviously played by a brilliant actress. Um, but I just I like the the kind of inversion in this episode where we're seeing the Roy family have to kiss the ring a little bit, you know. And and it's funny because they're the kind of big lumbering thing trying to buy the thing. They're th- they're throwing money at it. I mean, you know. Uh, at one point, Rhea is like, you're just bidding against yourself now because they keep raising the price. Um, right. and yet they still, they have to, this is a, a, a kind of odd sort of passive aggressive courtship. And it, it, I, I like that Rhea kind of, um, sits there centered, not, you know, not, not flinching and just kind of like tells them how it is. Absolutely. And, um, what I also appreciate is she's in there. Like, who knows what would have happened if she had left with, you know, there, there's this lockdown. She has to stay. She's in the panic room with the, with the top members of the family. Um, so she gets a, a little bit more of the pitch because she's forced to stay. Um, but what I find interesting is when they switch it, switch the TV back over, um, to ATN, um, she she has some she's like i you know i, I kind of get it it's full of vim full of piss and vinegar like the the pierce group is looking all the way down its nose at this fox news um analog they they're in the midst of this scandal with this newscaster that they have uh she has every reason to be completely on her high horse and then she like gives them a little something she's like i kind of i kind of get it i get the appeal of this to some people you know yeah. And I think, you know, you know, she kind of expressed a, a semi sarcastic kind of like, well, that was quite an experience, like just even sort of ha- the kind of clandestine way she had to enter the building, you know, yeah. and, and, and she seems sort of wryly amused by the whole thing. And I think that's a really interesting, I don't know, depiction of the way that when people are in those, these sort of positions of power and they know other people who are in positions of power and they know them in a business sense, but also sort of a social sense, a sense of living in the same city, traveling in the same circles. I feel like p- politics do blur a bit. And I think that Rhea comes in there and yeah, she's, she's, you know, driving a hard line, but also I think like, I don't know, find something entertaining about it. And like, I think that explains why a lot of people, you know, when this, current presidential administration will like invite Ivanka and Jared to their parties. You know what I mean? Like I I think Mm -hmm. that it becomes a sort of game. And I think that that was sort of well represented in this episode. This is the first time her reaction to Shiv, um, Shiv, who's like supposed to be there, but not supposed to be there. And we'll get to her. Um, 
it was the first time I started to think about Shiv as Ivanka, as the palatable face of this mm-hmm. family for some people. Um, not for a lot of people. Plenty of people don't find her palatable at all, but like she's the one you can and Ivanka and Jared are the people you can invite to the dinner party. You know what I mean? When you couldn't invite um Eric or um et cetera. Uh Don Jr. So uh so there you go. So there's Rhea at the top. Um one thing I do like is, you know, they mentioned that they wanted to bring Frank back into the fold. Um, because he, you know, good old Shakespeare Frank, right? And he makes a mm-hmm. Coriolanus reference, uh, in this episode, proving his like Shakespeare bona fides. Um, but, and then something Rhea says, like, as soon as she gets there, she's like, Oh, I feel like Cleopatra smuggled in the carpet or something like that. You know, it's just like, it's a, it's a different kind of, um, rich power broker person that we're dealing with here, which is the like sort of snobby intellectual elitist kind. Um, our kind of people, I think, Richard. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So, so here we go. <laughs> um, all right. So let's go to, uh, number two on our list, which is Greg. Um, Greg doesn't, uh, spend a lot of the episode on top of the power list. You know, he's sort of being shuffled. He is a voice of reason. He gets shuffled into basically like a, a, an office, an unused office, and rightly points out that this is not any kind of panic room. Uh, he gets water bottles thrown at him by Tom, but at the end he makes his play, which uh, we've been waiting for the payoff since the Thanksgiving episode last season, which is that he kept a few, uh, documents from the like cruise scandal, uh, paperwork that he was asked to shred by Tom. And he's like, I'm calling it in, but also like, that's not the last time. He, you know, cause he's not like, he doesn't give it up. He's like, I have this leverage. I'll never tell you where they are, but he's playing it sort of slow and steady. Um, yeah. which I like, Why we never really, yeah, we never really found out what this cruise scandal was. Right. I believe it's like, uh, it's, it's all, ba- it's everything bad that ever happened on a cruise. Um, that the way in which, uh, Waystar Royco, um, covered it up. So any sexual assault that ever happened, any, like, it's all bad is what, like, there was a scene last season where Tom sort of started enumerating what all the bad things were. Um, right. and, like, sexual assault, uh, speaking of which we were speaking of earlier, like, stuck out to me, but it's just like all the, like, Terrible scandals that could, you know, like, I don't know, violence or robbery or like whatever it is, whatever's happened, ever happened on a cruise ship, how they've buried it and hushed it up with like money and what have you. I so. see. Okay. Um, so a litany he, of sins. Uh, yeah, a litany of sins. There you go. So there's this great scene. I'm sure people remember last season where Greg on Thanksgiving has to go shred the papers. And there's mm-hmm. just like, it's one of my favorite scenes because he's like, um, he's like this. This goes away. He's at this like giant shredder machine and he sort of made himself like a little sort of song, like rhyming thing to remember. He's like, this goes away. This saves the day and saves the day is the like top piece of paper that he's grabbed to save for himself. And he just keeps doing that for like a while. And so he's got this like dossier basically of incriminating, um, evidence. And I really like the way that conversation goes. This is a great episode again. Uh, for Tom and we'll get to Tom. It's a great episode again for Matthew McFadden, but, um, I, the tenor of their conversation when he's calling in his blackmail and Tom's like, are you asking me if you can blackmail me right now? And then it's just like laughing and joyful, but also charged. It's, it's a fascinating, uh, exchange. Yeah. Because you wonder, like, 
I don't know. I think I find myself wondering this about a lot of characters in the show. Like, does Logan actually really believe in the news? You know, uh, like trying to locate some sort of humanity. And I, I feel like that the, the Tom Greg relationship is one where like, it's maybe the most close to the surface, you know? Um, and I'm curious to see how the show kind of teases that out if it does at all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Uh, as we said, we'll circle back to Tom, but he is obviously not near the top of the list. Uh, we also have another non-Roy player, which is Jerry. Richard, do you want to explain why Jerry is number three on our list this week? Well, she made it into the real panic room, uh-huh. which would suggest, I mean, I, granted, she was probably by Logan's side, so she just got swept up in it, but still, she got in the room, uh, which mm-hmm. felt like a coup. But I also think, you know, I had brought up earlier in this season about like my questions about Roman sexuality. Were they teasing that he was maybe not 100% straight? Whatever. Um, well, we kind of cracked some of the case to, in this episode, thanks to Jerry. Right. Which is its own uh, kind of power, right? Yes, absolutely. She's got, she's got extra power in the Roy family now, um, in this newfound sort of dynamic with Roman. Um, something that, uh, we should, I mean, I'm no, I'm no expert in any of this, but, um, what it seems like to me is, um, like a dom submissive thing is what, mm-hmm. uh, Roman is looking for. He's looking, uh, he tries to have, you know, sort of more vanilla phone sex with Tabitha. He gets, uh, grossed out by, you know, her making things explicit or, or just even like her sort of standard seduction voice. And he needs to feel like bad about himself in order to feel, uh, in the moment. So that is something that Jerry, Jerry can provide for him. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Yeah, and it's a, it's a, it's a turn... You know, obviously they've established Jerry and Roman's connection, um, pretty carefully this, this season so far. Um, I guess that was maybe in essence building to this, to this, um, moment in this episode. Um, but it still surprised me. You know, I didn't really think, and, and I think that part of what surprised me, um, and this is my own bias he's speaking is that like, I just didn't expect Jerry's character to be sexualized in that way, you know, or really yeah. anyway, I guess. Yeah. You know, we don't really know anything about her personal life. Um, but, uh, we know we see her kind of drinking a martini, you know, having eaten takeout, you know, like, so we get the sense of like some sort of quiet home life, but like, I don't know. I guess like, I think because she's an actress of a certain age and a character of a certain age, I just like didn't think it was going to happen. Um, I certainly not in this form. So that's a, that's a pleasant surprise. I love it. I love it. Not just from like a, I don't know. I'm just like, Oh, here's something different. And here's something that's different that doesn't feel different from, for different say it feels like once this is kind of revealed, as what Roman needs, you're just sort of like, 
Of course. And actually, like, I watched some of these episodes where I saw this dynamic play out. And then I went back and rewatched the episode in the first season where we see him interact with his mom. Because, like, you know, that's part of this. Not, you know, it's it's demonstrably part of this. In this episode, in an earlier phone conversation with Jerry, Roman goes, yes, mommy. Like, yeah. That is how he views her to a certain degree. And that is part of the arousal for him. So I was like, interesting. Did they sow any seeds for that in the first season? So I went back and rewatched like the wedding episodes to sort of see how Roman interacted uh, with his mother played by Harriet Walter. And they actually don't have them interact very much at all. She's like talking to Shiv and talking to Kendall and she's not really talking to Roman. And so um I will be curious to see if we get Harriet Walter back this season and if we get to see sort of how the stem of some of his mommy issue stuff, but some of the seeds. And once again, I don't pretend to be um, an expert in any of this. So if you want to, um, and I'm, and I'm never here to yuck anyone's yum. So I'm not like whatever Roman needs. It's consensual. Jerry seems to be like kind of enjoying it too. Great. Yeah, it's I'm, like, all, it's I'm all like for it. Playful in a way. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm all for it. Um, but I wonder, and, and so I don't want to say that like, you know, subdom relationships or whatever come out, have to come out of any kind of trauma. I don't think that that's the case, but the most sexual information we do have from Roman in the first season is this. It comes, uh, the reason I call it sexual is it comes up in the, when they're in the sex club in the first season, um, or the whatever club you want to call it. And, um, he mentions this, thing that used to happen when they were kids where he was like put in a cage uh and treated like a dog and he had to like eat his kibble out of a bowl before he was let out of a cage like this is a real way in which he and kendall both were um like uh, you know abused by their family um so this it feels of a piece i once again don't want to say it's one-to-one like child abuse to this kind of sexual proclivity. It's definitely not. But this idea that he was put in a, you know, probably put in like a literal dog collar as a kid. And then like, this is something that he's interested in. I don't know. It feels of a, of a piece to me. So, um, but if you listening are like, Joanna, you have it all wrong or I have opinions on this, please email us still watching pot at gmail.com. I am very interested to know what people think. So that is the Jerry Roman <laughs> dynamic. I love mm-hmm. it. I'm really into it. Uh, that brings us to number four on our list, which is Logan Roy. Uh, Logan actually is fairly quiet and subdued in this episode. And actually the most, the most repeated thing that he says throughout the episode is like, where's Kendall? Is Kendall okay? Where's Kendall? That's actually like a repeated mm-hmm. thing that he does. Um, but he's, Get, making moves towards getting what he wants. Like it's not a no from Rhea in this, at the end of this episode, really. Uh, so the, the quiet subdued sort of thing that he's doing in this episode is working for him. Yeah. You know, it's, it works. And I, I, again, I, I, I like when he kind of was saying, you know, I, I know I'm a terrible old bastard. Everyone hates, but like, I really do love the news. I love news people. Um, yeah, I, I kind of wonder how much of that is true. And I want to see more of that. I'm just, I'm curious yeah. about, you know, it's why I loved the episode with Walter because I like seeing what their business actually is, you know, yeah. the process of it. I don't want this to become a newsroom show, but, um, you know, just the little glimpses into the world of, of, you know, the news network and it's, it's various personalities. Like I find that really, um, 
fascinating. And so I like, I like kind of Logan addressing like that maybe long ago, you know, there was some actual passion for the, for the craft, you know? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I wasn't sure whether or not I believed him in that moment. Yeah. I, I kind of, I wanted to believe him. And maybe um, he wanted to believe himself, you know, I, uh, yeah. like, like I think that, you know, I think this, this deal is going to be one of the kind of bigger arcs of the season. And it'll be interesting to see like, um, how in, are they, is he intent on destroying this venerable news organization? Is he actually trying to draft off of its respect and sort of have that blowback on the rest of his company? Like, I don't know. And I'll, I'm, I'm really like eager to find out. The other thing that um he says there is he, you know, Sh- Shiv is trying to put her oar in in this negotiation. And she's like, well, to preserve the culture of Pierce, we could put certain like structures in place that guarantee you sort of editorial autonomy or whatever it is that you're after. And Logan cuts right through that um and says, listen, we know that's bullshit. We know that whatever structures we put in place, I can find a way around it if I want to. So the real question is, do you trust me? And I just thought that was fascinating, a fascinating question from that character to be like, do you trust me? Like, if you trust, if I say I'm going to not going to fuck with your model, I'm not going to fuck with your model. And I'm like, as an audience, what are we supposed to do with that when we've seen him double cross people at every turn in this series? So like, or just take that as completely disingenuous or, uh, you know, is this a different kind of relationship for him? What, like, what was your read on that? Well, I mean, yeah, I guess we're, we, we're, we're, we've only gotten our sort of, you know, this glimpse of, of Logan, but it's like, why on earth would anyone trust you? Right. You know, and I think that in a way, like, I, I get, I think in a way he was more saying, like, look, you have to even, like, you have to even pretend to yourself that you trust me because that's part of doing a deal like this, you know, like, yeah. like it, it is a suspension of principle in a way, or at least a kind of, um, forced bending of, of principle, like of, 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 of what you kind of already know because you want to force something through, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was a, you know, and I'm also wondering given, you know, we're, we're talking about Logan on the power ranking, like how much of this like shooting and then the lockdown and the whole thing about, you know, ATN under attack, like how, how much of that was sort of coincidental or whatever, you know, I don't know. I wonder like just how hard, he's pull- just how hard he's pulling the strings, you know? I think making sure that she's in the panic room could be seen as like a power, like a smart mm-hmm. gameplay. I don't know that he can like pull the strings on. Cause it, it, it was an employee who committed suicide because of like, um, you know, a bullying in the newsroom or something like that. And so like, I don't think that he could have pulled the string on that, but I suppose he could have pulled the string on like the, the extent of the lockdown and that Rhea was not allowed to leave that sort of thing. Do you know? Right. Um, all right. That brings us out of the building and over to Connor Roy, who, because everyone is in lockdown is the only member of the Roy family who makes it over to Mo slash Lester's, uh, funeral. Uh, I want to give this actually, you know, we've got Connor in at number five, but I actually want to give this as a joint Connor Willa sort of spot because she really shines as his partner, um, in this scenario. Uh, and she's funny, uh, in, in her sort of like grappling with all of this. Um, but also, you know, her playwright skills come through in the eulogy that she recrafts for him. Uh, so, so yeah, like what, what did you think of the funeral stuff? 
Well, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned Bella because also she gets a little mission. You yeah. know, like, like the family, whatever. And, and, and Connor's like, Hey, good. Like you're, you're in or whatever. Like they tell her, go find out from Mo slash Lester's widow what he said to this biographer, you know? Right. Um, and so she's being included in the intrigue, you know, and, uh, so good on her. Uh, I mean, she's, you know, currently embroiled with a kind of buffoon, but like, oh well. Um, but yeah, I thought, <laughs> I thought, you know, I, I think that like Connor being sort of comic relief, um, while trying to, you know, grease the uh, path to power or whatever, um, is, is always some of the lighter stuff on the show. It's some of the sillier stuff. Um, and yet at the same time, you know, kind of according to your, I think probably pretty accurate prediction that maybe next season he will be president of the United States. I think that makes the sort of buffoonery that much more chilling. If you think about the kind of long arc of, of what it, this potentially could be. Um, and yeah, showing up and making kind of an ass of yourself at seemingly a powerful person's funeral and being excited about the funeral because it means you can fundraise and sort of not being coy about that at all. Like, um, yeah, he seems like a real dumb, dumb, but like, well, you know how, where dumb, dumbs can go. Well, on the one hand, yes, obviously I'm never going to like defend Connor's, uh, intelligence, but on the other hand, like he handles the biographer, you know, um, she's, she's back. She's prying, uh, Michelle, uh, pencil, I think is her last name, something like that. And, um, I, I'm like, I'm impressed with her because like you and I are, are like quote unquote journalists where culture, we've discussed this before, how we sometimes don't know how to categorize ourselves. You're, you're a critic. I'm a whatever, but we're not like, like really aggressive, hard hitting journalists. And I really admire, uh, the skill it takes to get people to talk when they don't want to talk to you. And, um, and, and so the way that she is trying to like, bring his guard down and be like, we're not, I'm not interviewing you. We're just talking at a funeral. And he's just like, he gives her this version of no comment. It's, it's good. Like he does a good job of, with that, the deflection. So he has at least a few brain cells to rub together. There. Oh yeah. I mean, he has his own brand of savvy, you know, I mean, yeah. I don't think that you could be raised in this, this, you know, uh, kind of family without developing some of those skills. But um, he also, because of the family he was raised in, I think, has falsely assumed that he is himself a titan of, you know, the industry is sort of master of the universe when it's like, well, no, you just kind of were given that you haven't actually yeah. proven that you deserve it or that you um, can kind of wrestle it out of, out of that power out of nothing. I think that's true. Um, and uh, just shout out to Alan Ruck who plays Connor, his uh, comedic timing. Cause there's just something, something about the way that he delivered, like, when they were talking about Mo and Lester and he's like old Mr. Fiddlesticks and he's like, dad wouldn't let us in the pool with him. Like just the way that he sort of casually unrolls that whole thing is like uh, horrifying. Yeah. It's dark and, and funny at the same time. So. And then an implication, Willa kind of panics. She's like, I mean, all of those guys, what, you know, I don't think you should be here. I don't think you should be giving a speech here. You know, like, like you're like, what is actually happening? You know, um, but yeah, you're right. Alan Ruck just handles that comedy so well. I think it's such a, an incisive performance. And like, what did they feel free to tell Willa at a funeral? Like, what did Within, she like, learn the about minutes, the Wolfpack's yeah. antics at a funeral? Like, that's just yeah. like, yeah. So, uh, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to, I hope this biography hits and we, we hear all the things. So there you go. I would like read this fictional biography of Logan Roy and his various antics. Um, 
All right, that brings us to number six on our list, which is uh, Roman Roy. Also, not though he does get locked down um, in his remote location, but he is um, out at management training. Like I said last week, this is exactly where we met Greg um, in season one, episode one. In that episode, Greg gets like super stoned and then vomits out of his like costume that he has to wear as he's walking around the park and sort of washes out of the program. Uh, Roman doesn't get that bad, but he does like, you know, say some salty things in his turkey costume and stuff like that. Um, but he meets a guy, Brian, um, and you know, he doesn't do terribly. He's doing, he's doing okay. Maybe in the management program. Uh, and, and he figures out his sexual kink. So congratulations roman you're you're doing okay yeah i mean and here's another you know member of this family who like is not without his own savvy it's not without his own skill and intelligence i mean you know um and you know and, you know he's sort of doubting of the fact that like his pitch got picked up with his partner you know but the, and the, but the part he's like that's just my name and that the, the partner's like no i actually don't think it is i think they like the idea you know um so yeah i mean i i i i i don't really see him being much of a contender in the sort of vying for the the crown exactly um yeah but uh i i i you know i think he he's he's probably destined for something sizable um the 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 comment that his partner makes so his carter his partner the character's name is brian he's played by zach cherry who's a comedian that i really like and i really love like i don't know i kind of love this casting he's like this very unassuming but when he starts talking and he's like i'm intellectually promiscuous but creatively conservative uh stymied by a variety of enemies like it's just like it's you know it's just great another great succession character um but he another line that brian has is he goes no one has ever gone bust overestimating america's interest in violence which is a a very great and true line and he's just sort of like yeah you're onto something here like you got it Mm -hmm. yep vr violence uh, and then, um, I guess the last thing I want to say about the Roman Jerry thing, just to circle back is even before this, this last phone call they have here, her first co- phone call to him, she goes, is it very horrible in America? <laughs> like <laughs> he's like out there yeah, yeah. in real America. It's very horrible. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. So Roman, Roman and Jerry are, are OTP. Um, all right. So in our number seven sp- spot we have decided to make it a tie between uh logan's poor beleaguered children kendall and shiv uh shiv her first day at the office uh kendall possibly contemplating suicide the whole uh episode uh both of them sort of being played off against each other unsure of what they're meant to be doing necessarily uh trying to find connection with each other, not being able to connect and, and at every turn, just puppets for their father. I had like so much sympathy for both of these characters in this episode, but they are not in a very strong place, either of them. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing with Kendall. I mean, I like the scene where Shiv kind of confronts him and is like, what is it? What is the, is there some deal that you and dad have struck, you know? And she has no idea that the deal is just basically Logan saying you killed somebody and I'm not going to, you know, it, you have to kind of, be, stand next to me or else, you know, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Um, and so the, the tragedy of, Sh- for Ken- from Kendall's perspective of Shiv thinking that he's done something, I don't know, positive or, 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 or strategic or whatever, when actually it's sort of the opposite, um, or entirely the opposite. 
Um, I, I think that's an intriguing dynamic. And I also think the way that, you know, Logan is, call, you know, asking where's Kendall, the way that he, he seems to have softened to him is, is turning to him for, you know, uh, counsel and whatever. Um, I think part of that is that he can be friendly and to some degree affectionate with him or, or, you know, express a care for him because he's got him beat, you know, um, he's in, he's not any sort of challenge anymore. And so he can soften, which I think Kendall is probably keenly aware of and is, you know, kind of compounds the tragedy, I guess. Yeah. And this, um, I guess the thing that I am constantly looking for, the, the, the tragedy of succession, um, sort of as you allude to is like, if, um, if these kids could just band together, they would probably be happier, healthier and win. And the toxicity of the whole situation is that Logan just constantly plays them off each other. And so that's what's happening here is like, you see how powerful Kendall and Shiv could be, honestly, if, if he were able to tell her what's going on and if she were able to offer him the compassion support he needs. I mean, like, okay, poor boohoo Kendall, he killed a guy like, you know, or didn't, you know, like, I'm not, I'm not saying like, you know, he behaved badly last season, but it's also eating him up. And so I think we have to find sympathy for him or else like we're completely outside of the plot of season two, you know? Um, but the same with Roman, like Roman and Shiv and Kendall, like they're all constantly sniping at each other because that's exactly where Logan needs them to be. And it feels like that's why Logan, like, I don't know why Logan brought her in, but he's certainly not looping her in while she's there. She doesn't feel brought in, uh, in this episode. Well, yeah, I think we're seeing in this episode, like Logan, um, and we saw it earlier when, you know, in another episode where he was saying, yeah, you know, we'll send you to Hong Kong for six months. We'll do this. And it was like kind of pushing this thing down, down, down the field about, you know, three years. Um, is that like in concept, sure, I'll offer it to Shiv, you know, I, I, I she's more in my good graces than the other three are. Um, but like the closer it gets, the more it becomes a reality that, you know, he's just like, he, he really, Logan really like bristles about that. And I think watching Shiv realize that in this episode was, it was intriguing because, you know, she was sort of the Kathy Canary, like, like last episode, you know, since she was offered it basically. And to see that kind of, I don't know, contentment, uh, kind of punctured is, is, is interesting. That description of this one particular face, uh, that Sarah Snook makes as Siobhan, the cat that ate the canary is perfect. Like that is the look she gives sometimes when she like can't contain the smile, like barely trying to contain the smile. Like what, like in last episode where, where Logan calls and, you know, he's like, it, she's the, she's the only one who wasn't at the boar hunt or whatever and didn't express anything, um, negative about the, the potential, uh, you know, new acquisition. And, and she, yeah, she gives that little smile. It's just like, mm, it's working for me. <laughs> yeah. But so in this episode, she's like, why, you know, she, Jerry's in there giving her some like reports or whatever. And she characterizes it like, oh, why am I, I'm in here with a coloring book sort of like I'm being babysat, I'm being shoved aside, I'm not being included in these conversations. I didn't know Rhea Jarrell was in the building. Like, you know, if I'm being brought in, why aren't I being brought in? And and so she tries in this panic room scene to show how valuable she can be uh as helping a negotiation, uh what she can offer as as a palatable face of the company or, or what have you. Um and it's what she makes the fatal error um in that scene where she goes, 
um, basically Logan won't be here forever. Like yeah. you don't have to worry about Logan because Logan will be here forever. And that is where Logan sort of cuts in sharply. Like I mean, that, he yells at her in front of the yeah. CEO, which is like super, mm-hmm. you know, embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's that exactly what you already said this, but like any indication that like he won't always be the king, uh, is a surefire way to set him off. So, um, you know, if Siobhan wants to play this game, she needs to remember that. Siobhan is Conan O'Brien and Logan is Sheila. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we also find out it's interesting. We find out that, um, Kendall is like gi- giving his dad the medication, like really caring for her and, and him and Siobhan is like really weirded out by this. And I don't know if she sees it as like, too much of a trusted power place for Kendall to be in charge of the medication. She's just like really put off and weirded out by it. And so then I'm put off and weirded out by it and trying to figure out like, you know, why I should be. Well, yeah. I mean, if you want to approach this show with a sort of more compassionate, humanistic uh, lens, like um, it's really sad that these kids can't see any exchange of care, or intimacy passing between child and parent as anything but a strategy. You know, uh, as anything like, like as if there, and there really is a finite amount of Logan's attention. And if, you know, Kendall's getting six units of attention, then that means she only can, you know, fight for the last, the other other four, you know, um, it's, it's, it's sad. Absolutely. Um, all right. So the, I'm sorry, I just said absolutely. So after you said it's sad, um, I do, I do want to dwell on one last, like, really sad, interesting um, aspect of the episode, which is um, Kendall's frequent trips to the roof, his sort of like, you know, staring out over the edge, getting close to the edge. And then the, the next day when he goes into the office, there's glass put up. So like if he were thinking of throwing himself off the top of the building, like there's now safety glass there so that he can't. And was, does that mean he was being observed, you know? Exactly. Like that he was being watched. Uh, where's Kendall? Where's Kendall? Where's Kendall is something that Logan asks over and over again, as I said. And so like this idea, and we find out that they, we, we already saw him shoplift. He like shoplifted some batteries and threw them out. Like we already saw that. I don't think you and I really dwelled on it, but that's like a thing that he's been doing. We found out that the company knows about it and is handling it. Uh, and that Colin, who's their fixer, sort of like has his eye on all things Kendall. So yeah, so this idea that like when he's going up here to the roof to like have his quite alone time and a cigarette and whatever, he's being observed. Mm-hmm. Um, what's funny is I, it's not funny, haha, but I watched this episode when they first put the screener up. Um, on, on our, this is a little inside baseball, but like on our media site, um, a while ago. And, uh, it still had like sort of some temporary VFX in there. And they had only put the glass up like right where he needs to put his forehead up against the glass. Mm. And the rest was still blank and open air. Um, which I, so it means they digitally put in like the rest of the glass on that roof. And so when I saw that, I was like, is this temporary VFX or is this like a, a gesture? Like an even more we're watching you of like, we've just put the glass in the one place where you like to stand. 
um and the rest is open but then when i saw it with like the full thing in i was like well yeah that makes more sense okay <laughs> um, it was just temporary vfx um all right so last on our list uh but uh always most entertaining uh is tom uh Womgans, who gets uh saddled with this uh a, a nazi um or fascist um, anchor um, and having to deal with that, having to deal with his being in the, in the beta panic room, the not real panic room. It's literally uh, just a room. It's like a room. <laughs> not secure. Uh, and I just love that. Like when he co- talks to Shiv, he, he's like, who's in there with you? Like who, who's in, who's in the real panic room? Am I in the wrong room? Uh, uh, he has to deal with Greg trying to break up with him. And, um, he throws a water bottle in, in a way that satisfies, satisfies all of us who were upset we didn't get the tossed ice cream in Big Little Eyes. Uh-huh. At least we got Tom throwing some water bottles. Um, and then he is forced to give Greg a raise because Greg, um, outmaneuvered him. Um, and also like sort of support Shiv, but not, you know what I mean? Like, it's this thing with Tom where he's like excited for Shiv, but also jealous of Shiv and like wary of all of this. So, um, so yeah, uh, poor Tom's on the bottom this week. Yeah. I mean, you know, like you said, it's still very entertaining. I mean, I think that the scene where he's sort of running down this checklist of questions with the, the potentially fascist oh. news anchor. And, uh, he mentions that the dog, that the dog is named Barbie, just like Hitler's dog. And the, the anchor's like different, different spelling. And he's like, Ooh, different spelling. And that, like watching him realize like, Oh my God, this guy's a fucking Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just so funny. Um, and also I loved when the alarm goes off and he just goes barreling down the hallway. He's like, executive's coming through. Executive's coming yep. through. It's just so embarrassing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, he definitely came out, uh, last in this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the sort of like really delicate, um, way that he's like, um, when he asks if he's read Mein Kampf and he goes a couple times, he goes, Oh, are there, um, uh, Easter eggs you didn't get the first time? Like, um, and then, yeah. And then when he talks about, uh, this guy whose name is Ravenhead, Mark Ravenhead, I believe, uh, talks about, um, Europe decimated and he mentions like the German troops or the Polish troops that, that died and doesn't mention, uh, the millions of Jewish people who died. And he's like, uh, just check in the till, bud. You're short a few million. Like just the, the, the like Midwestern way he couches trying to grapple with these atrocities. And it's like, you can, you know, and he's like, or the scene. Okay. So he's like turned this, uh, guy who works for him into like a human footstool. Awful. Uh, and he's sitting there and he's talking to, to Greg and he's like, Nazis, they're terrible, right? <laughs> you know, Greg's like, yeah, Nazis bad. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great performance of a, of a worm-like character, mm-hmm. not, not doing his best. Um, uh, something that I, that I didn't mention in Greg's section that I should have is, is a great Sid Peach line where she's talking to him and she goes, uh, you're like a farmhand with his coat. Do you have to milk him? Uh, about how Greg <laughs> deals with Tom. So just like great, great, delicious peach peachisms, uh, all over the place. Uh, Absolutely. is there anything else? Is there anything else, uh, you want to mention of this episode? Uh, no, I feel like we kind of hit all the major points. Um, I just, you know, welcome Holly Hunter. Happy to have her. 
Yeah. I mean, so great. So freaking great. And next episode, we get the great Cherry Jones. So like, it's just, you know, I, I was, um, I was actually talking to, uh, um, discussing name drop. I was talking to Casey Blue, is that of HBO at, um, at TCA. And I was telling him that like how much I love succession, but how it's a hard sell for some people because they see it as like these, you know, white men behaving badly show. And he's like, yeah, but this season we have Holly Hunter and Cherry Jones. And I was like, sure, sure. Yes. I mean, I'm already on board, but if you want to, if you want to throw some awesome women at the problem too, that's great too. Um, the, uh, the, I guess the last thing I want to say about Tom, uh, before we wrap it up is we talked last week a lot about, um, the way in which Shiv mistreats Tom, and maybe underestimates like how far she can push him. But what we've always seen with the Shiv Tom thing is like Shiv pushes, pushes Tom around. Um, and then Tom pushes Greg around or this guy that he's treating as a human footstool. You know what I mean? Like he's just, mm-hmm. you can't feel too bad for Tom because he's just like, you know, paying it forward basically. Um, and when Greg tries to sort of like quit, he goes, um, something about like, I, I won't lose what's mine or something like that. Uh, which is, you know, very, they always couch it in this sort of like love relationship, this like very possessive lover sort of thing. But it, I think that's not just for comedic effect, but also to show that this is how Tom endures sort of what he endures from Shiv sometimes. Yeah. Um, is is sort of gets it out this way so there we go okay next week it is um the roys and the pierces uh, and we will see how that um all turns out until then richard where can people find you i want to be down at pierce news group eating some pulitzers i, I think <laughs> <laughs> for, for the tweets i'll be tweeting from rylas and the things i'll be writing for vf.com uh joanna where will you be until next week uh, you will find me in a turkey costume, wandering true, real America. Um, other than that, you can find me at VF.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Rothis, and we will see you all next time. And if you are watching this video... Either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect. Her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.